This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. We've been told that America was founded as a Christian nation, and that if the founding fathers were here today, they'd tell us so. Here's John Adams in the Treaty of Tripoli. As the government of the United States is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion. And here's Thomas Jefferson. That our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions. And here's the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What's more frightening than the perversion of our great history is that sensible, smart, strong Republicans, the very men and women who should be standing up to radical fundamentalism, are so frightened of losing primary battles to religious zealots that they've thrown in the towel on sanity. So we get this. Yes, that the, that the Constitution established the United States of America as a Christian nation. It's ironic because the biggest enemy of the phony Republican isn't Nancy Pelosi or Harry Reid or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. It's this man. He said, heal the sick, feed the hungry, care for the weakest among us, and always pray in private. Ideological purity compromises weakness. A fundamentalist belief in scriptural literalism. Denying science, unmoved by facts, undeterred by new information. A hostile fear of progress, a demonization of education. A need to control women's bodies, severe xenophobia, tribal mentality, intolerance of dissent, and a pathological hatred of the U.S. government. They can call themselves the Tea Party. They can call themselves conservatives. And they can even call themselves Republicans, though Republicans certainly shouldn't. But we should call them what they are, the American Taliban. <laughs> America's chickens coming home. Our common ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're gonna sing, swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Alternative activists, empowerment, on radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. is a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. And good evening, and thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground, the Black Sanctuary for ideas, solutions, and notions, and a little bit of comfort. It's good to have all of you with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Tonight we're going to be talking about election 2020. What's the playbook and what is the price? Our guest, Dr. James L. Taylor, you know him. He has been with us many times. He's a Our Common Ground voice, the chair of the... Uh, uh, political Science Department at University of California, San Francisco, and um, 
a political scientist with a great deal of insight and um, research. And we are so very glad to have Dr. Taylor with us, and we'll tell you a little bit more about him as we move into bringing him online. I want to um, just chat with you for a minute and welcome to any new listeners we have and all of our listeners have joined us in the chat room. If you'd like to join us in the chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com and simply search for OCG or you can check the... um, Uh, link that was provided in our program announcement Um, and by going to our Facebook page or ourcommonground.com which provides the link uh, to join us in our chat room. Um, We want to say that we hope that all of you are staying safe, that you are using as my dear sister, uh, late sister, Dr. Julia Hare always said that we are using our mama's common sense that she gave to us freely, and it has always brought us safely across. So stay safe as much as you can. Pay attention to what makes sense rather than the political hackery that is going on around this epidemic. In case you did not know, 852 black people have died from coronavirus as of Friday. That's 27% of all deaths. In Wayne County, Michigan alone, there have been 7,826 confirmed cases of COVID-19, and of those 799 are people who share our ancestry. That's 13% of the uh, general population. So we have to stay safe. We we have been in, in quarantine for since the days that we were forced to be on these shores. You know that. We have had to always keep our children safe to behave in a way that kept us protected. And that's all this quarantine, stay at home um, uh, is about. And, And one of the things that we have to recognize that in our community, We have housing that provides intergenerational rest and housing. We have many of our elders who are in um, private uh, assisted nursing care centers. We have many in our community who are first responders. My granddaughter happens to be one of those. She is a essential first responder for those who have died in Massachusetts. So please stay safe. And if you don't know what to do, here is a name. Just look it up, 
and she will be able to give you all the information that you need in order to give direction to how you are managing your personal choices. And it was Dr. Kamara uh, Jones, who was with us a couple of weeks back, Kamara Jones, C-A-M-A-R-A Jones. And you can find her on the Internet with loads of information to help us make good decisions so that we can survive this. No matter what you are hearing on national TV from out of the White House and out of our taxpayer government agencies' uh, heads, the task force, the whoever, you need to make sure you're making good choices because this is real. Uh, this is very real. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, we we just have to know that in slavery, during uh, Reconstruction, during the Civil Rights Movement, during the Black Power Movement, we always had to do the things that kept us safe and secure, and we know what those things are. Um, it, it struck me how important this is when um, we saw the white supremacists and white nationalists at the Michigan State House. And you and I both know if a group of black men showed up with guns which they did in California many years ago, and they changed the gun laws uh, because of it. It was called the Black Panther Party. Uh, if you know that we had shown shown up armed in the way that the and threatening in the way that these men and women showed up at at the at the at the, at the Michigan State Capitol there would have been violence. There would have been deaths. So we know how to quarantine ourselves. We know, we know where the borders are. And here in this pandemic, we need to make sure. Before I bring in our guest, um, I do want to say, and I hope he is listening, he indicated that he would be listening, that today... My oldest granddaughter, uh, oldest grandson, graduated from, uh, became one of the men graduates, one of the men of St. Se- St. Sebastian School in Needham, Massachusetts. There was no graduation. There was no walk across the quad, as they call it, to the chapel for the ceremony. So um, I want to let him know how proud I am. I know that it was a struggle to be in an environment where where you were competing on a daily basis and that all of your excellence was not always acknowledged. So congratulations to you, Miles Hughes Graham. Uh, four years, honors student, at St. Sebastian's, and uh, 
Um, we are very proud of you. So tonight we need to talk about what is in front of us. And uh, Dr. James Taylor uh, will join us now uh, to talk about November. And the question that I'm asking, what, what is our end game here? Uh, of course we want to get rid of this mobster, con man, pinnacle of global crime enterprise that's uh, currently occupying the White House. Because his plan, as I, as I indicated last week, his plan is working. They've been working on this plan for a long time, a very long time. And they found a goon who would be palatable to vulnerable Americans to carry it out. So he has a plan. He, he's working on somebody else's plan. Keep in mind that Donald Trump doesn't have the ability to come up with any well-constructed ideas. All of his ideas have come from others. He embraces, articulates what other people are saying. He doesn't necessarily understand it, uh, but it sounds good to him because at the base of it all, he is a white supremacist, a white supremacist that is an elitist in this ideology. Everything you hear from him comes from somebody else, whether it be Vladimir Putin or whether it be a crazy man in North Korea or whether it be Steve Bannon, whether it be all that whole Breitbart crew – his goal is to be rich, to be as rich as he says he is, and he's willing to do whatever it takes. So we're going to have Dr. James Taylor to try to help us understand what this playbook is, what our playbook should be, what should our agenda, what will our vote mean? Because you're all going to vote, right? You, I, I, I know there's nobody listening to the show that's not going to vote, but we're going to also talk about that. And it is clear that our options, once again, are very limited. Dr. James Taylor, thank you so much for joining us here at Our Common Ground tonight. Thank you for having me back, Dr. Graham. I really appreciate it. It's good to be back on well, uh, Our Common Ground. Well, you know, I, I just... I think that we're in political and economic crisis here. And I have been saying over the last two years, even though I was blacked out from 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 broadcasting, <laughs> but I have been saying that nothing can be accomplished as long as we have a Trump administration. Because even in the Reagan years, in the Bush years, there was a small window that sometimes we could sneak through. So tell us what this election is going to mean, what this, you know, I, I'm just, 
I just keep thinking about I got to vote for Joe Biden, and it it and it kind of sticks in my claw. Right. But I'm thinking that's the price. And why do right. we keep having to pay the price? Is it because the American political infrastructure works only for the one percent and never for poor and working poor black people? Well, I think uh, to answer the question, there's always been a tug, um, at least since the 1880s, um, between the popular sentiment and the progressive sentiment that emerges in America in places like Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma, where you, uh, this is why the Wizard of Oz, uh, you know, being in Kansas was significant, all the metaphors in that that movie um, about oil, about capitalism, uh, being the you know Oz himself, you know this big, scary, intimidating thing, and powerless uh, people, powerless creatures, uh, you know scare, you know the, the scarecrow and the lion, um, you know they re- they represented everyday people who were afraid of power. But the reason you know it's significant, the Wizard of Oz uh, and Kansas, is because most people don't know this. Uh, most people associate socialism in American history with like Chicago, with the Haymarket Square. A massacre or New York um, in the you know labor markets and industries that exploited women and children, but the the real home of socialism in America is uh, those states I mentioned, uh, those red states now. In fact, uh, there was a book um, that I um, moderated a one-on-one panel at the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco with the author uh, named Franks. Um, the book called What's the Matter with Kansas, and it documents this evolution of Kansas from a progressive, uh, socialistic-oriented arid place to a hard red uh, bastion now, and Oklahoma and Nebraska too. And this all relates to the ways in which the American political system, as you say rightfully in your question, um, with its system of limited options, um, you know, black folk and, and white voters have been forced to historically do this dance in between the two major parties, really since the Republican Party was established in 1856. It was perceived as the party of black people um, because it focused reluctantly on on abolition, and it took up abolition um, not as a cause but as a fact. And then after that, the Republican Party largely drops the African-American cause. Blacks create their own political party. Uh, It was called the Black and Tan uh, Republicans. They were a Republican Party within the Republican Party. And blacks created these independent institutions, and they continued until 1932 with FDR, with the Great Depression, and then blacks are between both parties up until 1964. In 64, blacks become solidly Democrat for the first time. And this is almost like chicken cheering for Uncle uh, for Colonel Sanders for blacks, historically speaking, going back to Andrew Jackson's racism, uh, for blacks to claim themselves Democrats. In fact, uh, Ms. Graham, right now, if you do the math, blacks were Republicans from 1856 until 1964. Blacks have only been yeah. Democrats since 1964. So you need another 50 years from today going forward for how long blacks were Republicans and how short they've been Democrats. And, and the end game is determined by the setup, by the rules. The rules of the game is that there are only two parties in America. 
and those parties cooperate with each other to make sure third parties cannot compete in 50 states. And this is why I think the Black Panther Party was important locally, and I wish they had followed through on the implications of their, of their party. And that is to actually create a political party, which is what they were copying when they created the Black Panther Party. They got off on becoming a self-defense military, militaristic, you know, military group, when in reality they copied the whole idea of Black Panther from a black political party that black folk had created in 1964 in Loudoun's County, or uh, uh, Alabama, the Loudoun's County Freedom Organization. That was a black political party. And the Panthers took the symbol of that party in Alabama and took it out here in Oakland where I am living. I'm in Oakland. Um, and, um, and that's where the Panthers got this idea. But what the Panthers did, I think, mistakenly, is that they became more about a sort of, you know, broad revolutionary focus, and they called themselves the vanguard, and they finally came back to their uh, roots uh, in the end when Bobby Seale almost won mayor of Oakland in about 73, and Elaine Brown almost won a seat on city council. The Panthers finally understood the, the real value they had as, as a model would be to be a political party, or I mean, to, I'm sorry, to be a political force at the local level. Black politics, and Du Bois said this, Ms. Graham, that black people are not a national population, but we are strategically well-placed in electoral college uh, states like Ohio and Wisconsin and Illinois and Michigan, right, all those black cities in those states. And until we have a multi-party system, Black folk might have to have a a a, 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 a dual type strategy: locally vote independent, locally uh, vote against the Democrats in places where the Republicans are weak. For example, in California, Republicans aren't even the second largest party. Decline to state is number two in California, 40 million people. So here, this place is vulnerable for a political party, wide open at the local level. The Green Party and other independent parties have been more successful. I'm not going to talk about all of this theorizing. The bottom line is you're talking about a practice, what can we do and what's the end game. The end game is that black folk need to play two games at once. They need to be creating independent local institutions like political party or political party influencing institutions to trouble the Democrats at the local level where the Democrats largely neglect us at the urban municipal level in cities like Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, Roxbury. These are Democrats. These are not Republicans. The Republicans are the racists that dominate most of those states. Um, so when Trump says you live in these horrible cities, he's ignoring the fact, and I wish I could get on national television and say this, when Donald Trump's talking about Chicago and Detroit and these other places, most of those states have had Republican governors for years draining those cities, like uh, New Orleans, making sure that they never get anything. So, so again, black politics, like American politics, is shaped by a two-party system that gives us, like you say, a politics of limited options. That's our politics. It's a politics of limited options. And, 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 and I think this is important to add. As, a, as such, at the local level, going back to the 19th century all the way up to the 20th century, if you see the movie, for example, A Time to Kill, and you see Samuel L. Jackson 
playing the father of the little girl that gets raped and, and beat up by those uh, rednecks uh, that my brother would call Pekka Woods and that uh, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner called Buckra. Those 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 awful you know yeah. pickup truck whites that will you know that that rape Reese Taylor you know those ones that mm-hmm. we we've, we've always seen going back to Jim Brown's movie Tick 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 right um, th- those are the devils you've always wanted to avoid I'm talking about the logic of black politics in America in the two party system here that's what I'm talking about and mm-hmm. and and I'm suggesting that black politics is actually brilliant it, under those conditions unfortunate conditions black politics is probably the most coherent American politics that anybody can speak to. You can't speak to white politics. You can't speak to Latino politics or Asian politics in America. Black politics are the American politics of America. Um, And I think people don't appreciate that about black America, is that black America came here with nothing completely stripped of their total humanity. And within, within 50 years, within 100 years, of being in the party system. They learned the system, learned to manipulate it, created way more parties in the 18th and 19th century than their children had in the 20th and the 21st century, seeking independence. And then they, got, then they jumped from one party, the Republicans, over to the other when FDR shows up because his policies made more sense to them. He wasn't less racist than Hoover um, or, or Andrew Johnson. The point is that black people made these determinations, and just like the Green Book, again, we had to know in order to survive, Ms. Graham. I'm sure your grandmother or your mama, who you talked about in the beginning of this program, told you about these phenomena where black women had to know where to be, how to be safe. My mother died in 2017 at 91 years old, and she told me about times she'd be walking around and white men would come running around their cars, you know, you know, trying to get, you know, trying to get at them, mistaking them for something else, or just just being predatory. And um, those were the ones we had to avoid. Uh, Bill Clinton's granddaddy owned a, 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 a delicatessen in Little Rock, they say, and he was a white man that was friendly towards blacks generally and loaned them, you know, let them get stuff on credit and didn't disrespect them and, and let them keep their dignity. And that's the difference. That's the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. This is why black folk are forgiven all of Joe Biden's horrible sins, the sins of aligning himself with the uh, Confederates, the sins of trying to use black nationalist arguments to support um, racial segregation. He tried to flip the script and say, well, they want their own, but he really just said, we don't want them. He bragged about Delaware being a slave state. Um, his friends were Strom Thurmond and, um, and uh, the likes of Jesse Helms and Trent Lott. Um, these were his friends, and he bragged about it and took pride, and Kamala called him out on it. Uh, Booker called him out on it. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, um, exposed uh, him and Hillary Clinton in 2016, and the Black Lives Matter movement has exposed uh, Biden again now. Uh, with his authorship of the 1994 crime bill. So um, there's plenty of things that we can point to that black folk can look at Biden and say he did all 25 of these things that offend us and they're deal breakers. The problem is in the situation where we only have these two choices is that the one, the other guy is far worse. So it's like voting for Beelzebub and, I don't know, Moloch, 
choose your mm-hmm. choose choose which one do you want to you know choose Malik or or Beelzebub which one you want um you, you have two bad choices just like we did with 2016 although I didn't see Hillary as a really bad choice um uh you know people didn't like her and so again the reason why we have resolved to support Biden against his sins against us historically and recently is because Donald Trump seems and appears to be far more dangerous. Now, when we get in further into the conversation, because uh, I want to let you, you know, get, get another question in um, now, uh, you know, I'd like to talk about how, in actuality, it's the Democrat presidents who get in uh, after the fear of a Republican threat and who do more damage. My example is Ronald Reagan created a myth called the welfare queen, and all of his talk. Ronald Reagan had eight years, and then Bush had four, and neither one of them did a thing to to affect welfare. All he did was use it as a political idea, a symbol, but he did nothing, Reagan. to What did Reagan do to welfare, everybody? <laughs> Reagan didn't do anything to welfare. Nothing, but he but he created the myth of the welfare queen. So our black politics or our left progressive politics is Reagan is the devil, and Reagan is the devil. But what Ronald Reagan... Um, did was just used it to keep uh, the white racist element uh, aligned behind him, but he never did anything to affect it. But as soon as Bill Clinton got into office, who got rid of welfare? Who reformed welfare? Bill Clinton, not Ronald Reagan. So in many ways, um, it's the Democrats that become more dangerous to black people after they support them out of fear of a more dangerous Republican. So we are primed to be disappointed by Joe Biden, given his real uh, political core, who he really is. He and, absolutely uh, is. And, and, and so I think that's the, the – I, I, I think, you know, a lot of people put black people down in our politics, say we on the Democratic plantation, and they ignore the history of the fact that we were Republicans – for 100 years, and that was harder, that was a much deeper attachment because of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, um, mm-hmm. and, and our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents who were political, they were mostly Republicans. So we had deep spiritual connections to the Republican Party uh, in terms of slavery and our history. And we walked away from that when it made sense. Now, nobody, very few people acknowledge that black folk came over to the Democrats to get rid of racism uh, and they chased the racism out of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was known for being the party of the South. From Andrew Jackson to Strom Thurmond to George Wallace, the, it was only the racist party. And black folk took it over and chased the racists out. Now, if you're a racist in the Democratic Party in 2020, you have no standing. Why? Because black folk took over the party. And, 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 and we, we get so conditioned to put ourselves down and see ourselves down, uh, uh, look down on ourselves, Ms. Graham, that we spend most of our times mourning our victories. We spend most of our time mourning our, in the ashes of our victories. We still think the 13th Amendment wasn't beat and that it has this magical power to undermine and to create um, mass incarceration. No, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass beat the 13th Amendment, and 250,000 black men with guns in their hands see the movie Glory. That's what ended the civil, that's what um, got black folk free. And that's what set the, the script. And that's what defeated the 13th, uh, the, the uh, slavery. 
right? And that's what, uh, uh, and so the 13th Amendment does not then open up the door for mass incarceration like uh, Ava DuVernay suggests. That's just bad history. We beat, we beat slavery. We beat Jim Crow. We've beaten almost everything these people have put before us as a people, and we've done it consistently and steadily over decades. And instead of us acknowledging it, we end up saying, well, uh, they ain't never going to give us reparations. I heard somebody, um, a very well-known and famous black woman economist, say in her uh, program the other day that we need to not talk about reparations because they're not going to give us reparations. And I said, now, how can you be a black woman who everybody respects, walking around with dashiki and kente cloth on, talking about, um, you know, uh, I mean, one of the best economic minds in the country. And the sister says, uh, they're not going to give us reparations. Well, they, it, with that logic, they weren't going to give us freedom. They weren't going to give us citizenship. They weren't going to give us America. They weren't going to give us anything, our humanity, and we took it over time. And so, and so for me, uh, reparations is no more of an obstacle for black folk if they keep pushing it than slavery was. It's a, it, when you beat slavery, Ms. Graham, there's pretty much nothing else you can't beat. See, because we didn't get genocided out. The Native American people, God have mercy on them, got wiped out. We're still here. In fact, Ms. Graham, right now, if you Google this, in 33 out of the 50 states of America, the white population's birth rates are out, uh, being outperformed by their death rates. They are dying faster than they're being born in most of America. That's the real crisis of white America, and that's not even adding the 130 people that are dying every day on opioids. They are in crisis. The Asian population is doubling. The Latino population is outperforming white women birth rates in every county in America, including in Vermont, New Hampshire, um, Oklahoma, places like, um, you know, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota. And then the white population is the only population in America, other than the Native American population, that is in decline. And let me say this real quickly. Let me say this real quickly. And they are the only white people in decline on the planet. They're the only ones. Our our yeah. life expectancy has increased compared to theirs. So we we're not even dying as badly in compared to them anymore. And we don't celebrate that. And that was big news a few years ago. The white community is in crisis. And it's, it's like in the Bible where they say Joseph was sold into slavery. You meant it for our bad, but God meant it for our good. We ain't the ones dying out, Miss Graham. Our population <laughs> projection by the United States Census is by 2055. The black population of America will be 65 million people. That's 20 million more than we got right now. And then five, in 10 years after that, by 2065, the black population in America is projected at 75 million black human beings. So and, and as much as they start, this thing started a certain way, black folk are, are a powerful force in America and in the world, and we keep saying we lose, we, we've lost it all. Mm-hmm. The, the, the connecting dots for, for the audience, and I got excruciated uh, a couple of years. Uh, you all sent me bad email uh, I, I, because I connected the Republican platform on reproductive rights and abortion had to do with the decline in white population. Mm-hmm. 
Then just day before yesterday, I was excoriated because I said that there is a reason why these people are willing in certain industries to allow people to go back to work to get the COVID-19 contamination to die. If you look at the headlines on the meat packing plants in Iowa, Idaho, Ohio, Michigan, and I'm missing one, Missouri, I think, uh, it, it it happens to be that it is working poor black people in those plants, and it connects right to what you are saying because they are aware, and Donald Trump knows it because somebody told him, not because he figured it out himself. No, absolutely. I think organizations like um, the American Legislative Exchange uh, Commission, uh, Committee, um, uh, known otherwise as ALEC, which is responsible Alec. for all the mm-hmm. stand your ground laws. And this is all the major corporations that we as people have in our, in our refrigerators, our freezers, and in our cabinets and our pantries. And black folks should empty them. Uh, they should Google and look for what companies support ALEC, because ALEC killed Trayvon Martin. George Zimmerman mm-hmm. pulled the trigger, but ALEC is the one that allowed George Zimmerman to get away with it. ALEC is a major enemy of black people in America, the American Legislative Exchange Commission. I don't dabble, Ms. Graham, in conspiracy theories. I, I just don't. I, I have no interest in them at all because, to me, the reality of black people is more horrifying than any conspiracy theory you can come up with, historically speaking. So I reject conspiracy theories. I acknowledge the reality of it. And, you know, to talk about, um, you know, uh, for example, the way people were talking about the COVID uh, breakout in the beginning, there was some nonsense that, you know, because it wasn't really being tested in Africa, that it wasn't happening in Africa, and therefore it wasn't happening to black folk as much. And black folk, were, you know, some people were in the beginning feeling themselves when they saw it with just older, mostly white people. And then all of a sudden the whole thing, the whole language uh, changed, the whole narrative changed, and, and, and the focus became about, you know, COVID became more about black folk and because of our pre-existing, because of the pre-existing condition of being black in America. Um, that is what has pretty much aligned most working class and poor black people um, up for trouble with this virus. It's like the death angel uh, in the Bible going through houses, seeking for weaknesses, and wherever it could find high blood or high cholesterol or hypertension or prediabetes or diabetes um, or obesity in our community, it's just tearing us apart. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and this happens with HIV AIDS. This happens with any uh, major outbreak in America. It typically um, hurts our people because of the pre-existing housing conditions of our poorest uh, in, in the projects throughout, you know, those that still exist in America in, in you know, public housing uh, with asbestos and can, uh, uh, asthma, uh, you know, uh, provoking, uh, yep. you, know, mm-hmm. you know, technologies and, um, and materials. Yep. So, so uh, uh, it was um, Benjamin Chavis, uh, uh, Muhammad, who, who, who's now Benjamin Chavis again, who in the 1970s, uh, coined the term environmental racism. Um, so that term came out of the civil rights movement 
from Benjamin Chavis, and and the the, the environmentalist movement fully accepts and acknowledges his particular um, identifying because they actually did a study uh, at the local level of the conditions of black people in America, and pretty much wherever there are incinerators, wherever there are uh, city dumps, wherever there are... um, you know, just the you know, uh, uh, you know, recycling Man, in, 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 type places. Yeah. They are typically Man, proximate you. to poor people who are, you know, regardless of race, but especially black people and brown people. And this is American capitalism, and it's sick. You know, the, the the sick part of capitalism in America is its racism. You know, America is not truly capitalism because if it was capitalism, we would have let the, the businesses fail in 2008, and they would let all these businesses that are failing right now just fail. That's true capitalism. True capitalism is, hey, you failed. And now somebody else mm-hmm. take their place. But American, the American government with Obama saved auto industry, and now they're saving all of these other industries like the airline industry. Everybody's being saved uh, except the American people. You know, with a thousand dollars, you're supposed to, you know, somehow fall in love with Donald Trump and his personal letter to you, you know, giving you welfare and telling you uh, to, to, you know, because of the crisis that you know has happened here, and the, and I think the conditions that he helped exacerbate. Um, uh, you know, he wants you to somehow get excited about a check um, that you aren't even going to really uh, be able to feel in about two weeks because you are already in the hole. If it means if, if that twelve hundred dollars means a lot to you, you are already in trouble, and all, it's already eaten up. And if you like me, you make enough money with that twelve hundred dollar get my account, and I wouldn't even notice it. It, it you know, it, it, it you know. That's that's just a whole other thing. I, you know, I, in fact, I didn't even think I even qualified for it. But my point to you is that they're doing these piecemeal efforts. And, the, and what Corona has exposed is that in terms of presidential politics, Bernie Sanders' policy positions like Medicare for all, universal health care, minimum wage, environmental protections on land and food and, and the environment um, – uh, those are the kinds of issues that are are resonant with right now, and this is to me the problem with Joe Biden, you know, playing this peekaboo peekaboo uh, campaign strategy right now. It, it's smart in one way because Trump is a bumbling idiot, and he needs to stay off the stage and let Trump continue to be a bumbling idiot, and it's working. Why 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 campaign when you, when it's working that you are staying out of the way? Um, but you know, but at the same time, um, you know, it, it, it seems to me that. You know, if African Americans have to rely on on Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, um, they're only going to do piecemeal things. Bernie's policies, to me, spoke to this moment. And as much as uh, this moment requires not Ronald Reagan with trickle down, everybody is clear. Everybody is clear, including Mitch McConnell and Trump, that you need a, a, a New Deal type. FDR-type presidency right now. So that's the trouble for Trump. He's in trouble because he's in the same position as Herbert Hoover in 1929 as an incumbent president, and he was one of only three, Herbert Hoover along with Bush, um, um, uh, the daddy, uh, as a one-termer, a one-term Republican, um, uh, so so that you end up with, um, you know, Trump in the same position as Herbert Hoover in 1929. Whether he's responsible for it or not is not the problem. The problem was that Herbert Hoover responded so slowly uh, to the economic crisis, and it was just his poor response that 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 um, 
that hurt Herbert Hoover. And so FDR comes in with the promise of a new deal saying, we have a national emergency. I want to usher in all of these massive programs. And that's when the middle class is created. That's where the dream of America that Martin Luther King is talking about, the American dream. That's what King is talking about, middle classdom. Nothing fancy. No, no, I don't, it doesn't even mean we want to be near white people. That's what white people thought King meant in the dream. But King was just saying, black people want middle classdom. Give it to us and leave us the hell alone. That's really what King wanted. They just, black people, all black people ever wanted in America is what most of white America wants, middle class status and to be left alone. They do not necessarily want to be rich except rappers who think it's big to have a billion dollars. Whoopie damn do when you die, somebody else going to get it. Like, like whoopie do, you know. But, but for most people, middle classdom was enough, and that's what made the American dream the American dream. But who created that? The labor movement. FDR's response to the labor movement. I challenge, Ms. Graham, your audience to Google the 1944 Economic Bill of Rights, or it's also called the Second Bill of Rights, and read it. And understand that's coming from a millionaire president from Oyster Bay, Long Island, New York, who was deep blue blood with ancestry going back to the American Revolution. His cousin was Teddy Roosevelt, a legend, and he married his other cousin. FDR uh, and the 1944 Economic Bill of Rights is the most comprehensive uh, top-down agenda towards guaranteeing American middle class a house, guaranteed a house, guaranteed a job. You know, guaranteed education, guarantees, not, not, not entitlements like the Republican racists have turned all of our demands in this society into. They call everything we want entitlements when FDR called them rights and named them, and he enumerated them. Unfortunately, he dies. But look at those bills. Look at what the president was trying to do, the second Bill of Rights in American history. That would have fundamentally changed the position of black folk. And be clear. Uh, FD, uh, LBJ, who was an undersecretary in the New Deal, emerges to see himself as the second coming of FDR or finishing FDR's efforts um, in the Great Society and War on Poverty 30 years later in response to our movements. Um, so, so black folk have had a tremendous impact on the political system. Um, and when you see um, even now, Black people have been coming after Donald Trump since the night he lost by 3 million votes. He lost in November 18 uh, by 8 million votes. So since Donald Trump won, he's lost 90% of, of the contests in, you know, where he's in play. And he lost by 11 million votes since Americans have voted uh, two, two major times in those elections. And in addition to that, um, you had a record number of women a record number of women of color, black women and men, because we always get left out, but black men are number two. Wherever they're talking about black women, this is what's really angering me, uh, Ms. Graham. All this talk about black women Democrats and how they're behaving and how they're the heart of the, t of the party, it's nonsense. Black people are. Black men are the most liberal males in the country on women's rights. Black men are more feminist than white women feminists are. We're more feminist than Latina feministas are, and we're more feminist on, in, in terms of policy positions, like, um, like um, you know, parental, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, 
you know, ch- you know, rights for your children or, or, or home care, you know, care for your children, or I'm trying to say parental care um, for for um, you know for prenatal or, or you know or child child related child related mm-hmm. birth, you know, and so uh-huh. and so for that reason, African American men score high. Uh, but they don't get uh, acknowledged. Like when black women uh, perform against uh, Judge uh, Roy Jones in Alabama and supported um, uh, the, the senator there, um, uh-huh. it, it, you know, black black men were number Jones, two. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, uh, thank you, Senator Jones. Uh-huh. Black men were number two in South Carolina. That the people, you know, it was black people that that saved uh, Biden, you know, and the, this narrative that is black women. I understand black women have been neglected, abused, uh, marginalized since the days of Shirley Chisholm trying to articulate her her position in black politics. I'm, and so I'm not trying to downplay that part. Um, I, I recognize that fully. But what I'm suggesting is people are downplaying the performance of black men electorally since 2008. Black men and black women together have set records, and they set a record in 08. They set a record in 12, and they outperformed white people for the first time in American history. And then they together punished Hillary by not coming out together. They they cooperated together. They split um, in the Florida uh, midterm election with um, with this guy uh, that's the governor now and the brother that got scandalized recently. Uh, and and they also split down in exactly. Georgia with Abrams, and they split in Texas with, mm-hmm. with Beto O'Rourke. Black men and black women did, but nationally. Black men and black women have been the strongest um, vote constituencies of the Repub- of the Democratic Party, and um, uh, the performance of black men, for example, in California, uh, a, a poll, uh, a UCLA study recently was done uh, on black, uh, uh, sampling black uh, voters in California, and the number one supporter of uh, of Senator uh, Warren um, was were black men. Not black women or white women or any other women. Black men were the, the number one supporters of Elizabeth Warren running for president in the state of California. Now, I'm not saying nationally. I'm not saying all black men. I'm just saying California black men who were who were sampled in the study preferred Elizabeth Warren over all other candidates. Now, the, well, the quick thing is people are quick to dismiss black men as some sort of unenlightened sexist and things of this sort, and yet here you see this nuance. And this goes back to what I was talking about, the intelligence we show with the Green Book strategies we use in our voting and, and even realigning in the party system. And people, you know, tend to uh, stigmatize it when in reality um, there are all these nuances in black politics and, and black, black voting. And, um, and I think... You know, it's why it's an important vote in this country to this day. It's 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 a vote that everyone watches. No one no one says, "Hey, let's look at the Asian vote." No one says, "Well, the the Puerto Rican vote is really going to be important." Oh, the Mormon vote. They don't even say the white vote unless they're talking about the black vote. And and that's because we have a unique. No matter how much division we have amongst ourselves in terms of sexuality, religious theology, uh, class, uh, economic status, region, um, you know, accent, um, education level, Miss Graham, where well, you might see a lot of like uh, Eugene Robinson wrote that book called uh, Disintegration and talked about the bifurcation of the black community. Well, you, you can't talk to a black political scientist like that. I mean, you can talk to a black historian, you can talk to a black person who, who might do scholarship around, uh, you know, liberal arts and, and the humanities, um, you know, literary type work. But in terms of politics, 
Miss Graham, there's no other area in life, and they ain't even a second, they ain't even a close number two to how black people stick together in their political behavior. There's not mm-hmm. a number, there's not even a close number two. When it comes to partisanship, Miss Graham, we punish Hillary by showing up at 88%. Now think about that. What else do black people do at 88%? And it's called bad, Miss Graham. That was bad. We punished Hillary by about 4% not showing up, and I believe the Black Lives Matter movement suppressed Hillary Clinton's black vote by about 3%. She was supposed to get 92% just because her husband, according to uh, Toni Morrison, was the first black president. And we had a relationship with Bill Clinton up to a point before we really figured him out. So she should have got 92% of the black vote just because she, just because she's a Democrat, she should get 88%, 89%. But Hillary got numbers like we gave uh, Kerry, and, and, and even Gore got more, and, and Dukakis. That's the kind of support she got, and, and, it's, and, and she should have got 94% because of her connection to Obama. She was a part of Obama's administration as much as Joe Biden is. She was his secretary of state. And she had a history that with us before Obama. And black folk punished Hillary Clinton together and, 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 um, and suppressed her, her potential uh, black support. And that's why she's not president, I think, today, uh, that and, you know, and 100 million other people. Well, what um, what was know, the pivotal point in which – what do you think was the pivotal point in which black people began to calculate in the formula – that Hillary Clinton should be punished. I think when she started talking about the assassination of Barack Obama in June of that uh, primary, and then the white women got really violent and racist um, when the superdelegates got together and they created that group called Puma, Party Unity My Ass, if you remember. And it was the white women Democrats yeah. that were as racist in the reaction to Barack Obama's uh, being given the nomination as the white women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony were toward Frederick Douglass when black men, uh, when the 15th Amendment passed. Um, mm-hmm. that, was, that was the reaction to Obama. Um, there was a fierce Democrat backlash against Barack Obama um, that, that played out. And so mm-hmm. I think, the, you know, the pivotal point um, is – is you know when black people saw how Bill Clinton was talking about Obama, and he'd be somewhere shining my shoes. Um, he said mm-hmm. something like, "This whole thing is a big fantasy, like this whole Martin Luther King dream thing here that's coming up in Obama is a big." Black people heard that, and they heard you know black people heard that, and 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 so and so um, that you know that hurt um, uh, uh, in those ways oh, and. Um, and, and Bill Clinton, uh, you know, and the way they saw how, you know, the, 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 the Clinton uh, campaign behaved itself, uh, at, you know, when it got a little bit nasty back and forth, um, black folk were turned off of Hillary. And they, and they really yeah. haven't forg- – yeah. and they didn't forgive her in time to, to warm up to her uh, for the, the subsequent election. She never really made peace with black folk for some of her offenses. And Biden is still going to have to have a, 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 a conversation with black America that – uh, concede some policy positions. You know, going to your main question on the show, what is the end game? Um, the end game is that uh, we we can only expect so much unless you're going to talk about a transformative policy like reparations. Everything else to me, Miss Graham, is is a waste of time right now, or just um, it's just uh, what you call patronage politics 
that might, you know, make us, you know, might send money into the black community so we can have a couple of centers here or there, you know, or maybe a new girls' boys' club or maybe a new, you know, local NBA team builds a, builds a, a court in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, we really mm-hmm. need that. Black people's wealth compared to white people's wealth is only possible because the American government has given white people reparations for 244 years. Ms. Graham, I don't know of another black public thinker or, 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 or person on the scene outside of myself, and I am going to uh, say this, I'm the only person I know who understands reparations to mean the complete American government behind you when you wake up in the morning. It's not mm-hmm. – the, the idea that we've been tricked into thinking about it as a check even undermines the original thing that black folks said they were willing to take, which was land and, and, mm-hmm. and tools, right, to do their mm-hmm. own building rather than checks. So, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not trying to dismiss our reparations in the forms of checks. I'm trying to suggest that something more sustainable for us as a people. How do white people end yeah. up with the, the value of 100 deeper. times – more wealth in their pockets than you and I do as average people. And we've been in this country longer than the Italians. We've been in this country longer than the Jews. We've been in this country longer than the Irish. We've been in this country longer than the French. We've been in this country longer than everybody outside of the Native American people themselves and the Spanish. We were here before the British. We were here before the British, Miss Miss Graham. And yet we're sitting here, all of the projections have shown, including during the Obama era, that the only people to fall behind, now I was talking about white people dying out earlier, that, but the only people to fall behind. So if our numbers are getting better, our condition is getting worse. The only people to fall behind over that last 20 to 30 years is the black American group outside of the more affluent of us. And I, so, I want to talk to you. I, I want to talk to you more about this deeper debt so that people really do understand that a debt is owed and a foundation that that was never built was owed and you're not the only person who uh, who understands reparations in in that white people get reparations White people go to get reparations when they go to the bank. They get reparations when they uh, in the police in the car. They get reparations when they're in front of the judge. They get refer- reparations even when they get sentenced by the judge. Even when they go to prison, they get a better yeah. sentence. In yeah. their worst, in their worst condition. Even when you got the lowest white compared to the lowest black, the lowest white still benefits from being white compared to the lowest black. So what I'm saying, Ms. Graham, is we should stop reducing reparations to even programs. We could create a national super fund uh, like the Recovery Act. And we don't even have to call it reparations, Ms. Graham. We can call it recovery because Obama has already put the apparatus in there, and, I, and, and, and it's possible. Um, but reparations really needs to be the main thing we're advocating because – White people have had that it needs since to be Abraham. The they had it since 1776. They've had that it since 1776, and we're still trying to get it. Reparations is America building an entire system, and 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 then saying that one group is superior to everybody else here, including the indigenous people who helped them survive, and the African people who built this land up from from this ground, and whose blood and whose labor and whose resources they produce provided the seed for capitalism in the West. Black people are the source of America's capitalism. 
So you want to talk about putting uh, uh, Harriet Tubman on a 20? To me, I had this conversation in a debate with my students uh, this week. Uh, uh, you know, we debated um, this $20 bill idea about Harriet Tubman. And I told them, I, you know, I have a hard time with it. I understand the symbolic value. And I understand it could educate white people, too. I, I get that. And it could educate black people and everybody else, too. But for me, it's almost a mockery of her. Like the Native Americans on the Cleveland Indians helmets or the Washington Redskins helmets. It's like, we conquered you niggas, excuse my language, and now we're going to put one of y'all on this dollar. The most respected of, of all of you in your history is Harriet Tubman, not Martin Luther King. We're going to put her on the dollar. And you don't have it in your bank account. Your children are still poor. You're still living in abject poverty compared to everybody else. You still are not enjoying the benefits of American capitalism, but we're going to put your greatest hero on the $20 bill, as if to mock us, like they do with sports uh, uh, mascots. Well, I, I it would be Harriet as a mascot unless they give us reparations, Ms. Graham. If they give us reparations, or I won't say give, I want to say grant, because it is yeah. owed, not given. <laughs> I need to change Fulfill my language. The responsibility. It, it, it needs to be granted because the entire, uh, uh, you know, and this is why they had the panels recently uh, where Ta-Nehisi Coates and they had this clown, you know, 15-year-old boy. He looked like he's 15 years old, you know, talking about reparations, and he turned out to be a boy from Puerto Rico who's having an identity crisis and struggling with being around black Americans as one of the conservatives on that panel. But, uh, and Danny Glover was on the panel. Um, and I wish I could jump through the television and say, even to Ta-Nehisi Coates, <laughs> man, what you're asking for is white people's sympathy in the same way Martin Luther King is. you begging them to, be, to go out their nature. We need to make demands for rep reparations because of the crimes that happened to our people mm -hmm. and injured us. And we need to make it clear that, every, that reparations is what white people have enjoyed since they called this place America for the first time ever in the Declaration of Independence. That's where the first time you can read the name United States of America. So since 1776, white people in general, even the immigrant white ones that came treated like low, second-class Irish, low, you know, the Irish betrayed black people because the Irish, you know, nobody else would let the Irish be around them. And, and the Irish, you know, as they got, it took them 50 years to turn, according to Ronald Takaki, it took the Irish 50 years from 1849 to 1900 when they finally got accepted because they came in 1846 with the potato famine. When they finally got into Harvard and Yale, uh, Ronald Takaki says that's when the and, 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 and there's a book by an Irish scholar named Ignatev called How the Irish Became White, that documents, and most black people don't know this, that the Irish are the white people that blackened up, that they were the specific whites who put on blackface uh, because they hung around us, and they liked us, and they admired us, and they worked near us, and then they started blacking up, and then they all of a sudden racialized it, and it became what we now call minstrel. But that was a betrayal. And so when you think about, you know, reparations, um, we've been here longer than anybody outside of the indigenous people here and the Spanish who brought the first uh, Africans here, according to Ivan Van Sertema, in 1555 as free humans. Black people were on the American continent from 1555 until 16, about 1620 or so as free human beings. And then the, the ship comes in 1619, and then they're finally really enslaved by about 1625 or so. The first blacks are documented as slaves in Virginia, right? So we've been mm -hmm. here all that time. 
and all that time, Ms. Ms. Graham, reparations is also this. It's not just being on the side of white people and giving them what we call middle-classdom through loans. I mean, Ms. Graham, Martin Luther King talks about this. Online, you can Google Martin Luther King talking about land-grant colleges and how they gave them county agents to educate them, the poor, and how they gave them money to undergird what he said was the poor white peasants and created universities like Cornell University and other land-grant colleges around America for these people who were largely, you know, uh, serfs in Europe. And they were able to get to middle class them because the American government created it. The same way the American government created the ghettos, they created Cabrini Greens. They created Nickerson Gardens. They created the Robert Taylor Housings, Ms. Graham. So I'm saying to you and to the audience that the American government has not only held up and lifted up white people and made them more superior in their position than they naturally would be if they didn't have the most powerful economic force in human history behind them, I'm saying most white folk would be ordinary if they didn't have America mm-hmm. giving them mm-hmm. reparations to make them exceptional. And if you were to take the American government's energy of the past 200-plus years, put it behind black people, on a, as a, the way it is behind white people, and then, Ms. Graham, put it against white people for 200 years and keep them under the throat and make them less than human and take away their civil rights and put them in ghettos and in the back of the bus, guess who's going to be the niggas of the future if that were to happen? And guess who's going to be the superior group of the future if that happens? Excuse my language. I don't mean to be disrespectful. Mm-hmm. But my point, to, my point is that the position of black people is what it is because the American government has kept one foot on our throat and has and lifted and taken uh, uh, two hands and lifted up the white group in America for centuries. That's reparations. It's not reducible to a check. It's, it's reducible to the full power of the American state behind groups. And this is what Martin Luther King is talking about, if people would just Google him talking about how this was done for the European immigrants. They got reparations when they gave them colleges and gave them people to teach them how to farm and taught them how to do different, uh, you know, develop different skills. And so for that reason, uh, reparations to me would be the equivalent of the American government quitting its racism against us. That means the prisons open up. That means this would be a utopian moment I'm talking here. This is like the clouds opening up and, and breaking through. Because reparations, Ms. Graham, would fundamentally change the economic relationship between black people and white people mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. And that's the real thing. You know, Dr. Taylor, And, and even I the police, I'll, I'll shut up after this. Even, after the poli- even the police, because the police typically police the poor. If we were, you know, had reparations and could eradicate our poverty con- you know, status in this country relative to everyone else, then our, even our, our negative relationship with law enforcement would be reduced. I'm not saying eliminated. I'm just yeah. saying reduced. Yeah. But, you know, I started uh, – there are two, two um, very important um, benchmarks that have occurred in, a, in America in regard to the political icons in this country that have become impediments to us. And I want to talk to you. I've got to take a break, but um, I I want to talk to you about the iconic impediments. Um, You know, you may not know, but I chaired the campaign for a new tomorrow uh, back in the 1990s where Ron Daniels 
wow. uh, brought leadership to uh, a, a black political playbook. Right. And that's why I I I I like the name of of I, I like that term, and I want to talk to you about why those efforts toward independent political parties have not worked, and um, why some of our black political leadership has not brought an aggressive uh, presence. Um, outside of the party to organize in our state and local uh, communities. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight is Dr. James Taylor, and he is bringing the fire and the knowledge and understanding and helping us connect all of the dots. We hope you'll stay with us. Our number is 347-838-9852. And we're asking the question, what, what what is the end game here uh, for election 2020, and what are your notions about what price they must pay for our vote? It is my position is it is not enough to just to be able to get rid of the tyrant nut brain that we. Are in. We're going to take a break. Dr. James Taylor, stay with us and we'll be right back. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. It's amazing how people can come together by spending time apart. Quest Diagnostics thanks you for doing your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus through social distancing and proper hygiene. At Quest, we're doing our part by establishing COVID-19 lab testing capabilities across the country to better serve our communities and healthcare providers. If you suspect you have COVID-19, talk to a healthcare provider and let's keep doing our part so we can all come back together stronger than ever. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Shout out to the hip-hop public health. All the health care workers on the front line. Together, we can make a difference. What's good, y'all? This is Fresh coming at you live and direct 
all of y'all out there. I got a couple of things I want to talk to y'all about. Wash your hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. Come on, wash your hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. My people uptown, wash your hands. My people downtown, wash your hands. People from the East Coast, wash your hands. People from the West Coast, wash your hands. First and foremost, please listen close. Take your time, wash. Use a lot of soap from the front to the back. Back to the front, in the hook where you at. That's exactly what we want. If you decide to leave, please take heed. Talk a social distance, at least six feet. On the bus or the train, riding in your car. The further you're away, then the better off you are. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Gray. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more. To make the greatest mistake, you need to wash it when you enter the door. 20 seconds or more. Take your time, sing a song, sit around. When you finish, you can put on some gloves. 20 seconds or more. It's very important to wash your hands. Why is America not the greatest the great... country in the world, Professor? That's my answer. You're saying yes. You're... Let's talk about fine. Let's... You know why people don't like liberals? Because they lose. If liberals are so fucking smart, how come they lose so goddamn always? Hey. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The U.K., France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yet you, uh, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is... There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're 7th in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, 3rd in median household income, number 4 in labor force, and number 4 in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yosemite? Sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed. We cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were, and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We reached for the stars, acted like men. We aspired to intelligence. We didn't belittle it. It didn't make us feel inferior. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election, and we didn't, we didn't scare so easy. <laughs> we were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered. First step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more.
and thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. We're here every Saturday night at 10 p.m., Transforming Truth. That means the knowledge from the perspective that we share as a people here at Our Common Ground to power. And tonight, our guest uh, at Our Common Ground is Dr. James Taylor, and he is the Chair Department of Politics um, at the University of San Francisco, President of the National Conference of Black Political, former uh, President of the National Conference of Black Scientists, Political Scientists, which is a very important organization, and we are so... just grateful that he has uh, agreed to be with us once more. Dr. Taylor, thank you so very much. Absolutely, absolutely. I, want, um, I wanted to take everybody to take a breath because right, right. That, that was a lot. I mean, you right. know, one of the things that I miss, and now that I have you, is Ron Walters at uh, University of Maryland and previous right. before that. And That's Howard right. was my political mentor wow. for this program. When you said Ron um, Daniels, I said, wow, and I was thinking of Ronald Walters. So just so you know, <laughs> when you asked your question and we went to commercial, I wrote down 1984, 1988, Jesse and Ron Walters. So that's a part of my answer to your yes. question, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was the Massachusetts chair for the Rainbow Coalition wow. uh, campaign for uh, Jesse Jackson Sr., uh, and um, as as the founder and chair of the National Association of Black Broadcasters, um, radio broadcasters, talk radio broadcasters, uh, uh, Ron Walters uh, gave us an awful lot of direction. Of course, we got sabotage, but that's another story. Right. But in the in in the campaign for a new tomorrow, I traveled all over this country numerous times with Ron Daniels to and and the the core of that that um, campaign was not that Ron Daniels was going to be elected president, but that the idea of having an independent black right. political voice. That's right. That's right. Was so important. That's right. And reparations was part of that. You know, I was That's probably right. around 20 years old when I joined in Cobra. Right. Uh, yep. So, I yep. mean, uh, I've, I've been doing this thing for a very long time, and one yeah. of the concerns that I have is that we haven't had a, the continuity and I'm going to try to get Ron Daniels with us uh, in a couple of weeks. We haven't well, had the c- continuity of our ability to organize around the, the the issues of what I say has to be the price that we are going to extract from whoever has the ability to make us whole. Right. Uh, 
So, and I think this is why I think um, you know, it, it, you know, to think about the the idea of independent strategy. Like I said, you know, along with Ronald Walters. There's the research of Haynes Walton Jr., H-A-N-E-S Walton yes. Jr. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. He's written a lot of work on black uh, political history, but black parties. He actually breaks down, you know, uh, just shows about 25 political parties that we created in the 1800s that nobody knows about, but he just documented all of these different kinds of parties. Um, and, and black folk were still doing parties in 1964. Like, like I said, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party with Fannie Lou Hamer is a recent example. We, 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 yeah. we, we missed that. That's what I'm saying. We've got so many things to be proud of and so many things that we've done that are examples, but we keep looking for new examples instead of building on the examples we have. Fannie Lou Hamer and right. black Mississippians decided to challenge white Mississippi's racist Democrats and beat them. And then they got robbed by LBJ and got in two little symbolic seats that they gave Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and Martin Luther King. They felt King betrayed them uh, uh, at, the, at the, I think it was 64, Democratic uh, Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, like I said, the Black Panther Party, took its name from the Loudons County Freedom Organization, which was a black Democratic Party in Alabama in the 1960s. And the Panthers took it, and SNCC created it. Stokely Carmichael and SNCC, you know, the student extension of King. SNCC was an extension of SCLC. And SNCC created the Loudons County Freedom Organization. And SNCC also was organizing in Macomb, Mississippi, um, uh, you know, with black folk in Macomb, and they went to Jackson, mm-hmm. Mississippi, but they all but they were in Loudoun's County. So the rule in Alabama at the time was that every party had to have an animal as a symbol, I guess, for illiterate people. I bet you that's what it was for, for illiterate people. So the, Dem- the Republicans had the, the elephant, the Democrats in the state of Alabama had the donkey, and black people chose their black panther. And then the Panthers in Oakland took it from Alabama and made it famous. So nobody knows about the Black Party in Alabama that the Panthers stole. What I'm, and, and so, I mean, stole the name from. And what I'm suggesting, what I'm trying to convey, if I can keep myself calm, is <laughs> that, because um, this stuff fires me up sometimes, uh, is that, you know, we had the apparatus of a party with the Rainbow Coalition. Ron Daniels, Ron Walters, in 1984, they were building on the momentum of a strategy for an independent party or a presidential strategy. And at the 1972 Gary, Indiana National Black I Political was there. Convention, mm-hmm. that is the I moment right there. That's the most important moment in yes, modern black absolutely. political history right there. Absolutely. That's the crossroads. The, the, After the movement, and, and, now it's what are we going to do yep. for the rest of this century and the rest? I, I don't know if you caught the our program, our broadcast last week, but Ruby Sales, who is one of the um, pioneering activists out of the South, who was one of the member one of the uh, original members of SNCC, was with. Oh wow! Us. I recognize the name. Yeah, and 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 Ruby Sales really laid it out to us in terms of the mistakes that we have made. Because yep. we have walked away yep. from what we have. And because uh, integration, we, I think, integration just, you know, made, almost made us lose our minds, uh, made us lose our black minds. <laughs> and, and, you know, to put it the way Malcolm <laughs> might put it, integration made us lose our black minds. Integration didn't mean we had to give up on ourselves. 
We did in terms of our own institutions, not absolutely, but in some key areas, I would say. I don't want to just broad stroke us because we've done some things right. But I think, for example, that the Black Panthers should, and again, it's Monday morning quarterbacking. So, uh, you know, again, and I'm in Oakland. I'm a <coughs> professor in Oakland. I know that the Panthers and the police end up being friends in the end, not enemies like everybody wants to pretend they stayed enemies. The Panthers, I mean, they were letting Huey beat people up and get away with murder. Huey got away with murder in Oakland. That's how much they weren't messing with Huey in the end, and that's how friendly they had become. When Bobby and Elaine run for office, um, they almost went here. And I think at that point they should have run as Black Panther Party members and ran the party. Ms. Graham, only because it says black doesn't seem like a radical idea, but a party is a really conservative thing. A political party is trying to play by the rules, play in the system. It's not revolutionary. It's not Marxian. A political party is about as mainstream as you can get. You're saying we want to play in the system by the rules with our own party ideas. So, but when you mm-hmm. say black party, everybody thinks it's some sort of revolutionary thing. But black, a black political party is actually a conservative move. And nevertheless... Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Rainbow Coalition, uh, at the national level of politics, should have followed Ron Walters' 1984 advice when he told Jesse to run independent. Uh, and and, and mm-hmm. I think Jesse, we should have in place right now. Here's my fantasy. Right now, we would have in place in every black city in America where there's a significant, at least 30% black population, <clears throat> a Rainbow Coalition party. Name the Rainbow Coalition. Name the Rainbow Party. And I've been saying this not mm-hmm. just because of what you said and revealed earlier about your connection to it. I, I, I said this to my students at Berkeley when I was teaching at Berkeley for six years. I explained to them that what is needed is a rainbow-type independent political party that runs independent strategy, uh, campaigns against both parties locally where they can win and then also continue to run nationally because it was the rainbow coalition that was at the, you know, the base of Jesse Jackson's campaigns, and it also delivered – uh, Harold Washington in Chicago, David Dinkins in New York, um, and Barack Obama in 2008. That was the Rainbow Coalition, the, the politics of it. So uh, Obama owed Jesse uh, in, in numerous ways, and Obama owes the elders who gathered at Gary in 1972 because it was at that moment that they were trying to decide, should we go with a political party or should we go with a presidential strategy or something in between with Baraka there, Farrakhan was there, you say you were there. Um, you know, there were um, um, uh, 9,000 black people, the cream of the crop, came together and tried to uh, – and the best scholarly book on this topic is by Robert Smith uh, yeah, in San, yeah. at San Francisco State, mm-hmm. and it's called We Have No Leaders. He's a disciple, the best student of Ron Walters living right now is Robert Smith. He's written a book – two books on Ron Walters recently to preserve Ronald Walters' legacy. So Robert Smith's book, We Have No Leaders, documents the specific history I'm talking about for the audience, about the 1972 National Black Political Convention. It was at that moment that the Jesse Jackson presidential strategy was born, the Shirley Chisholm strategy was born. Um, Jesse leaves there after Baraka kind of takes over and the nationalists sort of dominate the elected officials allegedly leave and it's all a mess. And then they try to meet in Little Rock. Uh, Harold Cruz was there and Harold Cruz became discouraged uh, at Little Rock. But before that, Harold Cruz really did believe that the only point of black politics in America, he felt like the whole idea of what we're doing as a people is, is to end up in a party 
that will continue to advocate our policy positions um, going forward for however mm-hmm. long we want it. That has, party would has, advocate for reparations and rights that we have traditionally stood for as a people. Whether we win or not is not the key. The key is that we have a political apparatus that states our policy positions and uh, makes the two parties have to respect us on some level um, in this limited option system. Mm-hmm. Harold Cruz was a very famous person. Uh, I will never forget that it just stayed with me for uh, decades. He said that politics is the art of negotiation. Mm-hmm. I love Howard Cruz. He's my favorite thinker of all time. I mean, I consider myself a student of Howard Cruz, um, and I'm actually sitting here full of books right now, uh, reviewing a new book that my friend at Penn State just wrote named Errol Henderson. His book is called The Revolution Will Not Be Theorized, Cultural Revolution in the Black Power Era, and I'm reviewing it um, for some pub- you know, for a publisher. And, um, you know, he's, his book is new, 2019, and it's it's dedicated to China you know, re- revive and think about the things that Harold Cruz suggested. What Cruz was really telling black people politically, not, not, not in terms of every aspect of our life, but just the politics and the cultural aspect of our life, he felt like the whole point of our political movement and our social movement with King and all of that should be the formation of an independent black party. And, and, and again, it's not radical. It's actually what our ancestors were doing, and they weren't trying to be radical in the 1880s. They were just trying mm-hmm. to create a black political space to influence politics. It's better than us being beholden to the Democrats or trying yes. to take over the Democrats. Now, what we're doing right now but, is interesting, but too, doesn't though. It come down to doesn't it come down to belief? And I'm saying this to to our listening audience. It comes down to belief, whether or not you believe in black people and whether or not you believe that there are some points of liberation for which we ought to be struggling rather than points of just continuing to tolerate what he said, they said, what they didn't do, and 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 that that a whole notion, you know. Um, I had a, a very close friend who said to me, Dr. Taylor, um, a couple of weeks ago, we have got to stop voting for black people who, because they're just black. We've got to hold them accountable for what they say, who they are in our community, and what their intent is. And that's the whole thing about we got to have a, a, a playbook. Playbook that's the only problem I have with that is his. his, I I, I reject his premise that you know that we you know tend to vote for people who are black. Again, black folk were behind Hillary against Obama until late. One Um, and two, um, you know, black folk again are are bound with the 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 politics of limited options. And and the truth is, in most uh, electoral districts. Black people are voting against black people are running against black people. So when we voting for black, most of the time when black folk are voting, they're voting for black against black, not black against white. That's rare. Mm-hmm. And so very few, mm-hmm. very rare do black people even have the opportunity to vote for a black over a white. So that's just again, I just hate how in our culture the way we like we put down our preachers, we you know we we mock our preachers automatically. You know we we clown them. You know we we think they're a joke, right? We don't respect them. 
you know, in our pop culture, in our comedy, in our theater, you know, in our films, you know, and yet they do so much good in our community. I'm not talking about the pimps. I'm not talking about the mega people. I'm talking about the, the, the people that are more like the movie The Preacher's Wife, where the man is broke, you know, struggling, trying to make ends meet, or a woman broke, struggling, trying to meet the needs of everyday people in our community. And yet they get, you know, categ- you know castigated. And I think we have that a bad habit in general in our culture, is even when we do well, like I was saying earlier, we tend to, you know, take victory out of, you know, we take defeat out of the jaws of victory and find a way to, to see our victories as, as defeats. And um, I, I think we need to understand that black folk don't just vote uh, for, uh, for racial reasons. I think black people are the most intelligent group of voters in America. No group, no group, not whites, because white people don't even vote as whites. Um, they vote as individuals, and their vote is called white. They don't have a group consciousness in general as a white people, unless we're nearby as a threat. But a white person in Vermont ain't the same white person as the white person in Alabama. Think about Alabama's whites and Vermont's whites. They're totally philosophically different. Um, And so, um, you know, I think, you know, what we have to recognize is that uh, voting for uh, our our voting – has been strategic voting, like you said, uh, and, and Ron, Ron Daniels was suggesting. This is where we need to be learning the lessons. We need to be studying everything from Gary, the Gary Indiana Convention on forward. But, but Ms. Graham, we also need to be studying the history of the Garvey movement. We need to understand that black power seems so revolutionary and radical only because the students, Huey, Bobby, Angela, Elaine, H. Rap, uh, Stokely, because even when they were studying at Howard and other and Atlanta and other places, they were not studying the history of the Garvey movement and how the Garvey movement was nothing but black power in the 1920s. So when you're talking black power in 1965, 66, all you're doing is saying the same thing your granddaddy was saying in Alabama. Black power was uttered in Mississippi. Right, it played out here in Oakland with the with uh, 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 with the Black Panther Party, and in New York, and in Detroit, and in Chicago, and in Atlanta, and, and in black cities all over America. Um, but I think what people fail to understand is that that period between '65 is where we make a major move in the party system, and so we break from our party that we have been with for over a hundred years. In 64, and now here in Gary, eight years later in 72, we're talking about going independent from both parties. And that was 9,000 delegates came from every walk of political life. And they were talking about a strategy. What should we do? Should we go independent or should we do a presidential strategy? And it blew up in all of the ideological split, you know, bifurcation that happened, and 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 it, you know, became discouraging. But even in Philadelphia... In Atlanta, in I think 1980 and 80, as recently as 80, in 1980 in Philadelphia, if you look up the National Black Independent Party, those same elements that met in Gary in 72 kept yes. meeting. They met in 76 and again in yeah. 80. Uh, and they were trying. calling themselves Gary, too. That's right. So the main thing that really affects this change, to get to your original question, is that when Jesse sort of catapults Gary and runs to the Humphrey campaign, 
and then Jesse becomes a strong Democrat. Jesse largely becomes symbolic because he has with him the legacy of Martin Luther King, at least to some of us he did. And so Jesse takes most black folk stronger into the Democratic Party that they were already moving toward and had become, you know, they had just done something historic. They had just broken away from Abraham Lincoln in 1964, and in 1972 they ready to break away again. But... As the situation happened, it blew up in their face. But think about it, Ms. Graham. At that moment, what if they did create a party, right? Or what if they all got behind Shirley Chisholm or got behind somebody else and ran an independent presidential strategy then and continue to do it now until one day, all of a sudden, it's more brown people in America than white people, like I was saying earlier. Now, all of a sudden, your party that seemed like it could never win is the party that is like the ANC. All of a sudden, the party that was out is the only party that matters. See, we have to begin to think more about our history in terms of the longitude of it and not just every generation. What I mean by that is, Ms. Graham, we ignore that we had a successful political movement called the Reconstruction Period. It was short, 12 years, but it was a political moment, a political cycle. Then we had under Booker Washington 6,000 jobs, 6,000 businesses, excuse me, black-owned, women-owned, black-owned businesses. You want to talk about Madam C.J. Walker and that movie? Who was she contesting with? Who was she beefing with the whole time? Booker Washington. Who was the most important man in that movie other than her husband? Booker Washington. Booker Washington is probably the single most important black man in American history, and Harriet Tubman, the single most important woman, black woman in American history. I, I, I debate it, but that, those are the two I'm on right now. And because Booker is the one that um, Garvey comes to America to replace. And so the whole Garvey movement and Rastafarianism is, is Bookerite. The black, black power is nothing but Booker Washington's economic program. Everybody heard revolution when they said black power, and Nixon understood it was conservative, and he called it black capitalism, which is what it really was, so, so, so at least part of it. So um, I think we ignore, for example, we had a reconstruction political movement. So by the time we get to the 1960s with new black elected officials in the 1970s, that's a second cycle. We had them before Hiram Rebels, Blanche, Blanche K. Bruce, the, 19, uh, the 1870s, um, 1860 to the 70s. Then the doors closed. But then the Garvey movement and the, the black movement, the Harlem Renaissance, that's a cultural movement. And we ignore it. So it, just that quick, between, uh, between Booker Washington, you had the, a, 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 I'm sorry, between Reconstruction, you had a political class of blacks emerge. You had Booker Washington with an economic moment, a, black, a, a economic movement. Then it came with a cultural movement and an art movement. So we had a political, cultural, and, um, and, um, and, and economic movement before we got to the 1930s. And then the Great Depression happens. And then World War II happens. And much of our momentum as a people under Garvey and what Garvey represented, because it wasn't all about Garvey. It was really about black people, not Garvey. He was the, the face of it. Um, that we, come, we go into World War, into the Great Depression and World War II as solid, unique black people nationally. In every black city, Garvey's movement was the most important, and the NACP was trying to get in where it fit in, even in L.A., even up here in Oakland, up in San, and in San Francisco. And then, um, and then um, after, you know, after a period of time, Unia uh, eventually dies out, you know, after Garvey's arrest, et cetera. But black folk went into World War I, nationalistic 
and, saw, and, and focus on the black community. We came out talking about I Have a Dream. So we went in with the face of Garvey. We came out with the face of Martin Luther King as a people. Yeah. The whole orientation yeah. of black folk. There, was three, there are three big periods. Uncle Tom is the image of black America that the new Negro is rebelling against. Garvey and them are the ones that turn Uncle Tom into an Uncle Tom because Uncle Tom represented long-suffering, patient, Christian humility. And even Uncle Tom in the book, he dies for not selling out. He dies He's killed at the end of the book by Harriet Beecher Stowe for not selling out. But it was politicized by the Garveyites in the 1920s to get rid of the national personality of black America as the Uncle Tom thing. Uh, meaning all of black America, like you hear uh, people talk about uh, Leopold Sinkor and the African personality. Well, I'm talking about the, black, the Negro personality. The Negro personality was under Uncle Tom. And that was the way in which slavery was abolished through that book, the way in which she cast us as a people. It was so important that it, it, it was the major literary, uh, you know, spark in the Civil War, the way she depict, Harriet Beecher Stowe depicted us as long-suffering. And what I'm trying to say is that, is, that, was, the rep, that was the image of black America. Then Garveyism rebels against it, turns Uncle Tom, the character, into a sellout that he really never was, and then break from it and say, we are new Negroes, new how? We're, new, we're no longer Uncle Tom. That's really what the new Negro is meaning. It means we're no yeah. longer Uncle Tom. And, and, and that yeah. generation didn't understand that. I think Zora Neale Hurston and, and the others who were the artists, you know, County Cullen and uh, Alelia Walker, uh, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, who was the major socialite at that time, they, they understood that, you know, their, what, what was going on. But I think we failed to acknowledge as a people that we had the political moment of Reconstruction. We had the economic moment of Booker, Wright, uh, Booker Washington's leadership. We had the cultural Harlem Renaissance that was rebelling against the stereotype of black people as long-suffering Christians. And we moved to the cities. We become more militant. Uh, the Morris Science Temple is born. Father Divine's Peace Mission is born. The Nation of Islam is born. And that's where we begin to reject a lot of mainstream Christianity through our urban cults, like those I just named, um, and the yeah. Rastafarian movement, which is nothing but a cult, um, the worship of Haile Selassie and, and Marcus Garvey. And then after that, the Great Depression and World War II throw us off, off track, Ms. Graham, is what I'm saying. This is all how yeah. it, In fact, Ms. Graham, this argument is not even mine. This argument is Harold Cruz's argument in an article he wrote called Black and White, um, right after, mm -hmm. in 1973. He wrote this article, and this is his argument, um, effectively, that, you know, we have these cycles of black history and cycles of black movements, and we keep missing on them. And so when Black Lives Matter emerges, it, it, it wants to compare itself to, black, uh, to the Black Panthers when it needs to understand itself in the continuity of Garveyism and Garveyism in its relationship to Booker. There's a continuity, a genealogy from Booker Washington all the way to the Million Man March, what, all the way to the Black the, Lives Matter movement. There's a direct genealogy. One and, of the points that you don't, you, you're not bringing up here, and I, I want to point out to our listeners, absolutely, is that you have there is another piece that you skipped over and you didn't include. Huh. Uh, 
that you point out in your book, Black Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm Uh-oh. X to Barack <laughs> Obama. Right. Why did you skip over that? <laughs> Which part? Which part? Which part? Um, the, the book itself? As, as as an era in how we moved from Malcolm X in 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 the in the context of black of nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. And black politics. Yeah, I mean, it, Malcolm, it, it, you know what? I I think you know again that was part of the the independent thrust of black tradition. Black people have always been trying to find uh, a, a space in their in politics where they can articulate their policy positions, whether it's conservative, liberal, or, or, or something or moderate. Um, and we, have, we are one of the few groups that still practice block voting and ethnic group voting on a national level. Other groups might do it locally, like, say, uh, Cubans in Miami, you know, or Haitians in, Miami, in Florida, you know. But, but black folk, we are the only group that do it nationally with, with intention. And like I said, Everyone's always talking about how black folk don't stick together anymore and black people are changing because of class differences and all of these elites who feel guilty about not being connected to their grandmama's community anymore come up with these theories of double consciousness and all this nonsense to make themselves feel better. But the core of black people across every category of black difference with other blacks does not show up on election day. Let me say that again. Mm Mm-hmm. Every category of black people being different from other blacks. Everybody says black people are not homogenous. Black people are not a monolith. Nope. But black people are a very strong political block of vote in America. Again, on a bad day, if they show up with 88%, it's a failure. A a B-plus is a failure if black America um, uh, shows up uh, 88%. Right, but if you know, but if Black America so ninety two percent, then the Democrats are happy. So, so my point is that Black America is a very powerful political force. Um, we need to understand that we're some of the most politically sophisticated people in this country. That uh, the Asian population um, doesn't understand the system like we do, not the immigrant population. The Latino population is young. Those that are becoming the majority of that new influx of immigrants, they're young. They don't have the political knowledge. It's going to take them about 40 to 50 years to really get the kind of institutions they need to get going. We've we've already lost more black institutions than other people have created. I told you, we we had a whole bunch of political parties nobody knows about. So, Ms. Graham, I I am optimistic about us. I'm optimistic about our future. I'm optimistic about black people because... I think, I think our ancestors, um, through their experiences and then their resiliency, um, their determination through any means, no matter what the white man put in front of them, if they put a, 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 a jar of jelly beans in front of them, all black folk had to figure out is where they bought the jelly beans and where they bought the jar and fill it up, and they walk up to the counter knowing exactly how many jelly beans in. We had to outperform the racism. That's what we're going to have to do in November. They are trying to take away the vote because Republicans can no longer win a fair election in terms of popular vote. Since 2000, the Republican, even in 2004, they think the Ohio Secretary of State Glover helped uh, George Bush get the second t- uh, uh, term. So, and then Donald Trump lost by 300 million, uh, by, by 300, um, by 3 million votes that night. So the Republicans cannot win fair and square anymore. They have a demographic problem, Ms. Graham, because America is browning. The Democrats have a geographic problem 
because the electoral college is is really um, in play in places where Republicans, you know, within those red states or in those purple states. So in the future, the Republicans are going to have to continue to use voter suppression methods, voter ID type campaigns, uh, Trump's uh, artificial and fake and debunked national voter fraud agency that lasted and, and had to be shut down because they didn't find five cases out of 120 million votes. They didn't find 100 cases of, of, fraud, of fraud. Think about that, 120 million votes. And they didn't find 100 cases nationally and Trump running around talking about voter fraud as a pretext to try to rig the system again in 2024. So because outright, Ms. Graham, I don't think the Republicans can win anymore outright unless they come up with a young, charismatic moderate. Um, but as long as they continue to you know, offer these conservatives, the Republicans are going to have to continue to cheat like they did in 2000 with the Bush brothers and, and the, the, the governor there uh, and the Supreme Court ruling there. And in 2016, where Donald Trump lost by the second largest margin of popular vote losses in American history, Hillary whooped Donald Trump so bad, only one other presidential popular vote whooping was worse, and that was Obama, I think, beating John McCain. So Hillary set a record when she beat Trump, and everybody acts like America's not ready for a woman. Um, I, I reject that, and I think uh, black folk are the most progressive force in American politics, um, and it would be black people who would get behind a woman candidate like they did Hillary, number one. Black people are progressive. Here in San Francisco, we're constantly fighting the socialists and the radicals attacking London Breed. Um, because they think she's not progressive enough. Here she is from the projects. Here she is, got a dead sister who OD'd. Here London Breed has got a brother that just almost died recently, and London Breed got a brother in prison for killing somebody. The mayor of San Francisco. Got a, a, she was raised by her grandmother, like my mother raised my nephews and nieces and raised us in the project. A black woman raised her. And that's who London Breed is as mayor of San Francisco. But the Bernie Sanders radicals in San Francisco, they spend all their time acting like because they are socialists that they somehow are more progressive than black people. When black people here in San Francisco and Oakland were the progressive wing of, you know, of the black movement uh, here in the West Coast in the 1950s, 40s, and 60s, going back to Asa Philip Randolph and C.L. Dellums with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in Oakland. This is the bastion of, of progressive politics where you had Willie Brown and Mervyn Dimely as two black political leaders were the first black leaders in America to pass legislation abolishing sodomy laws. And yet in California, the slander on black people is black people are homophobic and black people are against gays. And gays ain't never did nothing for black people in the meantime except ask us to see them the way we see our own struggle. Please see us as minorities like you do you, but they ain't never did a damn thing for us. In fact, when we lost mm -hmm. the 1965 voting rights in 2013, that's the same week that gay rights was, was acknowledged. So they're dancing up and down the street celebrating, and we're in ashes and mourning in 2013. And then Trayvon was killed. So we need mm -hmm. to understand what um, Congressman William Clay said a long time ago. We should have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent political interests. And that interest has to be served at every level. And you're, you're absolutely right uh, that we have got to, I mean, I think that 
history matters so much that if we don't understand, then we can't have an insightful examination of where we stand. That's right. I mean, I have been one of the proponents. Well, I, you know, I, I just had my seventieth, seventieth birthday this year. Happy birthday! <laughs> Thank you. No, it was what a way back in January when what a blessing. I knew that China was closing down, uh, but Donald Trump did not. But right. anyway, <laughs> uh, right. we've got to put it in the con in, in a perspective that reflects. What we know. That's right. And what we know is that we have survived as a collective. That's right. It didn't happen. It didn't happen across the street. It didn't happen uh, on the corner. Or it didn't happen in Chicago. It didn't happen in New Orleans. It happened. We our survival has been about a collective struggle. That's right. And you you are absolutely right. This idea that we don't respect how we cross these bridges. Yep. We I mean, don't we can't, you can't you can't have Harriet Tubman on the twenty and then say we lost. If you want Harriet on the twenty, you're saying we won, right? And yeah. and, and yeah. if we if we beat slavery, it, it beat us. It, it it destroyed us. It dehumanized us. It continues to be in our DNA, and it continues to be the major reference to us as a people in this land. We are proof of slavery. We are the proof of slavery to this day. Black people here, you and me, we are proof of the history of slavery. Yeah, um, yeah. We've, we've only got a few more minutes, and I do want to underscore that I think that in your library you should have a red copy of Black Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. That is how I met you. Um, That's right. I met you. And most of my arguments that I'm making right now are in that book, and they are, again, I want to acknowledge where my thinking is coming from. My thinking comes from Harold Cruz, and that's how I think his thinking about American black politics are the clearest, uh, most crystal you know, point blank kind of understanding of what we need to do strategically as a future. In fact, after he wrote uh, Crisis of the Negro Intellectual in 67, he wrote Plural But Equal in 87 that most people don't know about. By that time, he'd given up on independent politics because after Little Rock, it was a dead dead idea. And, of course, Gary, uh, you know, Jesse running as a Democrat is proof of it. But he wrote Plural But Equal, and he says this in 1986. He says in that book in 1986, if black people had not formed and thrust all of their efforts towards the creation of an independent party at every city yeah. and every, you know, locally, he says, then we've reached the end of the dead end of black politics by 2000. He said yeah. this in 86. Yeah. He said in 86 that if we don't have an independent black party that is coherent by 2000, then we've reached a dead end of black politics. Yeah. yeah. And he was, you know, he Dr. got, Taylor. You know, Thank, yep. thank you so very much. Thank you much so much for having me. You're going to come back. I mean, yes, you, absolutely. I'm looking forward you're to it. In, you're the family. And, thank you. Um, I, I think it really builds. Some, you you have helped us really build some some solid and stable thinking about thank what you. this election is going to mean. And thank I'll you. be in touch. Great. And we are so appreciative 
of your Absolutely. your stay safe. Your, stay safe. Your scholar. You too. And thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, sorry we weren't oh. able to take any calls uh tonight, but I thought it was very important for us to try to build um a, a, a an intellectual infrastructure because otherwise we can feel so very uh, discouraged and hopeless. And there is a playbook that we have to develop, but it is really more about after we vote. It is really more about what leverage we have to deal with this government. I want to tell you a little about what we're going to be doing here at Our Common Ground next Saturday night, and we hope that you'll enjoy us. You know, in the old days, um, radio stations used to always um, – networks and broadcast companies used to always approach me about doing a weekly show and because I felt that you needed the continuity of what what we were doing at Our Common Ground, we needed the continuity of a daily show. And uh, after terrestrial radio went away and after black talk radio was sabotaged by so much of the same kind of politics we were talking about tonight, I um, decided to do this weekly show, and it's becoming cumbersome because we can't take your calls because we only have this two hours a week. We can't uh, lace up and and connect the dots from one program to the other because we do have um, a, a vision of informing and then synthesizing uh, what we know, what we know now from what Dr. Taylor talked talk to us about tonight to what we, to what Ruby Sales was saying to us last week. I do have, um, uh, it's not all totally um, just, it, it's trying to, to bring this line of continuity and that's what we're trying to do. So we're going to think about it. But next week, our guests will be, to Ray Reed to talk with him about the fate of poor and uh, working class blacks and the connection to neoliberalism. His new book is Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, and we suggest that you might buy it. Toward Freedom, you can get it uh, at any of the booksellers, but if you want it tonight, like I wanted it that night. So thank you for being with us, and we'll see you next week. Uh, be safe out there. don't know when you should have done but you didn't when you should have but you don't when you can't find won't ask can't say what you want what is your 
when you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself. Just who are you? What of the souls of black folks? Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. A special thanks to our chatters in our chat room. Join us on Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, and our website at OurCommonGround.com. Twitter, follow at JaniceOCG. See you next week, Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time.